Here's what I wanted to do tonight. I want to do what we do every Tuesday night for the past 20 years. Uh, we gather together scores of people from across New Mexico State uh, every year, a different crowd, um, to open up the Bible because the God of the Bible has a mouth and he likes to use it, which is another way of saying he's not a God who hides or teases or plays hide and seek. He's a God who comes right out into the light and says, see me, hear me, touch me. This is who I am and this is who you are. And so tonight I figured, why don't we just do that and uh, skip the sales pitch, skip the lecture and what I'll do is, as we go through this passage, I'll do two things. This is, I got low ambitions tonight. Two things only. Number one, I want, I want to set up our conversation for the whole semester. We usually go through a book of the Bible. We spent all of last year going through Romans. I loved it. Um, and at least two or three of you did, too. <laughs> um, this semester, we're going to go through a series called Relationships Reimagined. All kinds of relationships. Everything from your roommates which are great now, give it a month, um, <laughs> to parents, to dating relationships, to sexuality, to marriage, to all kinds of stuff like that. And so I, I want to do one thing. I want to set that up so that we know how to think about that in the coming weeks. And then the second thing is this. I want to give you a little bit of a, of a window in to see what RUF is about, why we're here, what we're like, who we are. Now, that's fair enough, right? A lot of y'all are you're doing your... Uh, you're kind of going around checking out different places and we want to serve you in that and help you up front tell you what we're about so that you can uh, so you make those decisions. And so something we do at RUF, we stand up and we read the passage right before the sermon. So why don't you do that? Sean got us started here by reading this passage uh, earlier, a little bit of it. And so I'm going to pick up at verse 17. This is a letter that Paul wrote to people in Corinth. That's why it's called Corinthians, if you're weirded out by that word. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, basically saying if anyone is a Christian, uh, the new creation has come, or you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new is here. And all of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Jesus and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world or all things to himself in Christ. Not, here's some good news, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. That's what we're talking about tonight. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, we plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. That implies you're able to be reconciled to God, right? But he says, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why don't we pray and ask this God who is alive to help us hear and see tonight, and we'll, we'll dive into this. Lord. I was thinking while we were singing, the only reason we are here is because you are a God who made the first move to come to us. It's just like Morgan said earlier, nobody on this campus uh, was seeking you, um, but you were seeking us. So you were here first, and, and RUF is here, and these other ministries, your church is here only because you are a God who pursues relentlessly. You are a God who renews. 
And so would even tonight be a time when you plead with us and you show us not just that we're called to be reconciled, but that you actually are more than willing and eager to welcome us to yourself through Jesus with open arms. Do that, we pray for your own name's sake. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Thanks. So three weeks ago, and uh, every last week of July, every year, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. That's where I'm from. And the reason why is because 150 other people just like me, RUF campus ministers from across North America, we gather together at a hotel. And people like Ezra and Sean and Brittany are there too. There's 150 of them as well. So there's 300 of us in this hotel lobby. Uh, it is simultaneously one of the best weeks of the year for me. And as Anna will report to you, it's also one of the worst weeks of the year for me. Here's why it's one of the best weeks for me. Because these are guys, they're my age, they're just like me. We have a ton in common. It's easy to get along. And we're all coming out of you know, a whole year of, of being on campus, and so we got a lot of stories to share. It's just fun to be with them and to catch up. They're really gifted. It's cool to kind of try to get them to rub off on me a little bit. Um, but the hard thing, the reason it's also one of the hardest, maybe even worst weeks of the year for me, is because as I'm driving up to that hotel every year, it's the same thing. Uh, the sliding glass doors of the lobby open up, and it's like, it's go time. And uh, I'm pulling my little roller suitcase in behind me, and all I can think about, all, what's dominating me in that moment, is my own insecurities and my own weakness. And I do the same things y'all do. Um, it's, I think sometimes they should make this just for laughs, but make a life-size cell phone so you can literally hide behind it and like <laughs> people not see you. But, but for some reason, we all think that uh, getting a ton of text right when you walk into a new room of people is, uh, is, is a good way to hide. But I do that. A place that should be about fellowship and friendship and, and rest became a place of competition and performance and sizing everybody else up. His personality is better than mine. I hate him. Or this guy's more athletic. I hate him. Or whatever. He's better than me at this or that, or he has more friends, or he's political and he's trying to get his name out or whatever. These are good guys. These aren't bad people, but what I hate about training isn't training. What I hate about that week is that I'm there. I'm there. Here's the deal. When I get into that hotel lobby, I don't get to check my baggage at the door. I bring it all in the door with me, and everybody gets to see it. Um, everybody gets to talk about it. And it's, it's a five-day uh, five conference, and so I always, like, God is working on my heart through the week, and it ends up becoming great again towards the end of it because we, we confess this, we repent of it. But it's still a really hard week every year. And I will tell you, even this year, I'm like, I don't think I want to go this year. So it's the best week, and it's also the hardest week because I pretend, and I compete, and I try to perform for other people. And it makes what should be a safe place a dangerous place. And that's why I hide behind my phone and do some other crazy stuff like that. So I don't know if you felt this tonight. You certainly have felt it in the past week. Some of y'all are about to go into sorority rush, or you're already doing fraternity rush. Some of y'all uh, just coming here tonight or going to the food truck thing or going to some other club that you've been a part of, you know what it's like. You're walking down Imol. Best case scenario, you have a friend with you. 
and y'all are chatting it up and everything's fine, but then it's like you get closer to the building and there's some force field there because once you see the crowd outside, it's like put on your game face. And as Ron Burgundy famously says, things escalate quickly. <laughs> your adrenaline starts pumping. The simplest conversation like, hi, my name is Ben, becomes strategically thought out. How can I say, hi, my name is Ben, the best possible way? And this is kind of, it, what, what should be a simple, easy little thing becomes something we overthink. We stress about it. And I'm talking to the brave ones. I just told you, three and a half years of college for me, I didn't come to stuff like this. For the very reasons maybe you were tempted not to come, or, or a few years ago, your first time, maybe you were tempted not to come. And so again, why is, why is such a simple thing like, right, like relationships have to become such a hard thing? Here's why. You can coin this phrase and attribute it to me. I came up with it today. Life is like flying southwest. You carry all your baggage on with you. Here's the deal. We flew a ton this summer. Flying with a baby is the most stressful experience in human experience. Because you know if your baby does cry and you know your baby will cry, everybody will hate you and put you on the Instagram passenger shaming or something. Like this kid ruined my whole day. People tell stories about you for years. But we flew a lot this year, and you know how it is today. Planes are never empty anymore. Like, they're always every seat filled, and you always have the weirdest people sitting next to you. So as you bring your baggage down the aisle, it's like rolling over people's toes. They're like, you just ran over my toe. And you're like, I don't care. <laughs> you're jamming that baggage up in the overhead compartment. It doesn't fit. You're slamming down the, the thing on the top. The flight attendants are getting snippy with you. Life is like flying southwest. You can't check your baggage. You have to bring it with you. And it's inconvenient for other people. You know that. That's why you're afraid to go to new groups. You know that. That's why you're afraid to be honest. You know that. That's why you're afraid what your new friends are going to do when they actually get to know you in a month or two. And I'm afraid of this too. And these are the reasons why such simple things like relationships can become so, com so complicated and so fearful. Now, I, I'm obviously over-dramatizing this just a little bit. This is somewhere in the ballpark of, uh, of reality. And I know we get mixed feelings about this kind of stuff. Like, I get it. You're excited to be here tonight, too. No one forced you to come. Um, you want to get to new, new people. But at best, our relationships are a mixed bag, Right? We're excited by them. We're terrified by them. Um, and the past week is evidence of that. Um, if you think about it, how much relationships dominate your life. Your worst nightmares are relational nightmares. Your brightest dreams are relational dreams. There's people in both of those. Think about your worst nightmares. Do they not involve like either having a speech that you got no notice on and you just have to stand up and preach like Aaron, get the sermon right now. You're like, ah! That's a lot of people's worst nightmares. That's a people nightmare. It's a relationship nightmare. What are they going to think? Or that you get found out in some weird situation or people, you're shamed publicly. Or you're dumped by the person of your dreams. On the other side of it, your brightest dreams are relationship dreams. Maybe they're romantic. They're just girl in my dreams, guy in my dreams, gonna marry them, I know it. Uh, or the relationship dreams like my music is gonna go viral and everybody's gonna come to my house show and then I'm gonna get on the radio and I'm gonna be huge. It's a people dream. 
all of our dreams and our nightmares are people, the relationship stuff. And so if our worst nightmares and the hardest things in our life, but also the brightest dreams and the best things that happen to you are all traced back to relationships, is that not a hint that life from beginning to end is kind of all about relationships, right? That's a, you buy that? That's a pretty... I, that's a pretty low bar. I hope you buy that. Otherwise, we got trouble coming if you're not agreeing with that. But all of life is about relationships. And it's not just me making this up. Paul says it here. Now, when you read Paul, you have to read the Bible well, which means you read between the lines a little bit because Paul's a real person writing to real people. Where does Paul say that all of life is about relationships? Verse 19, he says this. God was or God is reconciling the world. What it literally says there is all things, all things, everything in existence, God is reconciling to himself through Jesus. Okay? So if that means that God, God's agenda, what God is up to in all of reality is reconciling everything to himself. What does that presume about everything? If he's reconciling it to himself, what does it presume the current status of the relationship is? Uh, think about it this way. Let's say, Nat, I'm seeing you, so I'm going to use you. Sorry. Nat just had a fear attack. Sorry. <laughs> if I said, hey, Nat, brother, we need to reconcile. What does that presume about the current state of our relationship? If I'm coming in saying, we need to make amends, we need to reconcile. What it presumes is obvious, that at the present time, we are unreconciled. Let me explain that word, because pretty much nobody uses that word in everyday language. Think about it this way, <clears throat> and I've used this before with, some of you are going to be familiar with this, with this illustration, but think about what it looks like to be unreconciled the same way, it, uh, the same way we think about being dislocated. If, if me and Nat are unreconciled, Reconcile each other, something bad happened in this space between us, right? You said something, I did. You did something, I did something. And there's distance, right? The evidence or the proof that you're unreconciled to a person or to God is distance. It's isolation. It is not being able to see the person anymore. Whether it's God or whether it's roommates or parents or whatever else, distance is what results from unreconciliation. And so think about it this way. Uh, a practical example of what it means to be unreconciled. My arm right now, thankfully, is in a perfect relationship with my shoulder. Some of you, and because it's in a perfect relationship with my shoulder, I can use it the way it was meant to be used. I can fist bump you when you come in. I can do construction around my house. I can hug you. I can shake your hand. I can protect you. I can fight evil so long as it's less than 160 pounds. <laughs> but I can use my arm because it's in a right relationship to my shoulder. It is connected. It's located properly. But, um, and some of you will start to feel pain tingles right now when I say this. Some of you experience what it's like when your shoulder pops out. Or a, or a, a joint comes out of the socket. Hopefully not your hip or something like that. But but a shoulder or an elbow or something, when, when the shoulder becomes separated, when it's no longer in a right relationship with my body, it is dislocated. What that means is every time 
I use my arm for what it was meant to be used for, it is excruciatingly painful, right? Even the slightest move, anything that requires the use of my arm brings about pain, and I have to readjust so that the pain goes away. Okay, now let's say you're, you left your arm dislocated for several months. Would you not eventually learn to have some kind of function in your arm? You'd be walking around like this, but maybe you could still use your fingers to like pick up a pen because you didn't have to move your arm that much. What I'm saying here is you would begin to settle for minimal functionality, right? You'd still use your fingers, but you couldn't use your arm for all that it was meant to be used for. Here's what Paul is saying in this passage. What it means to be unreconciled to God and what it means to be unreconciled to each other is that you are dislocated from him and we are dislocated from each other. And any time you try to use your heart, your soul, your relationships, pain comes. Not all the time, right? Remember that minimal functionality? You can still do a few things, but we settle. And we call the pain normal. And we just assume that instead of relationships being completely wide open and free, completely about love, completely about sacrifice, we begin to define relationships in this tiny little narrow sliver and say relationships are all about me, minimal functionality. We settle for the pain, we settle for being able to move this much in our relationships and we call it normal because we don't know any different. Okay, that's a pretty big predicament if you're talking about your shoulder. It is much, much more serious if you're talking about the essence of you, your soul, right? And by connection to that, your relationships to each other, not just with God, but with each other. That's a really big deal. And so what does it look like in this passage real quick? How can you believe me that this is actually what Paul is saying? Look at verse 15. He says this, Christ died for all so that, you want to know why Jesus went to the cross and died? You've probably heard a lot of reasons. There were several reasons. Here's what Paul says the reason was. To free you from you. He died to free you from sin. He died to free you from guilt. But Paul says here, also, he died to liberate you from slavery to yourself. That sounds weird. I consider myself a very gracious master with myself. I don't, I don't order myself around. So what does he mean? What he means here is that we, he says, what slavery to self looks like is that we live for ourselves. We are motivated by nothing more than my own happiness my own agenda, my way, at my time. Um, if you want to see fireworks in a relationship, start dating someone or marry them. Because, or uh, move in with them. Like, get a roommate or several roommates if you're really risky. Because then what you have, you have multiple people pursuing, chasing after their own happiness, their own desires, like a freight train at 90 miles an hour. And what you do when you have a roommate or a spouse, you put another freight train on the tracks coming at you. What do you think is going to happen? Are you beginning? I love my wife. I need to say that. Just as a footnote there. 
you know, long drive home tonight. Um, she's not a freight train and she doesn't abuse me, but when you, you know, you know, y'all believe me, you know what it's like. Your siblings, your roommates, your parents, this set of desires, this set of desires, and we're both pursuing them at all costs to get them. That is what slavery to self looks like. Paul says, if Jesus hasn't come to you and freed you from yourself, reconciled you, popped you back in the socket with the God who made you and the God for whom you were made for, then this is your life and there's no escaping it. You can read all the self-help books you want. You can, you can talk about it. You can redefine words all you want. But if you believe that the Bible is telling the truth, then you've got to say this is an honest diagnosis of where we are. And so the question always becomes, if this is an honest diagnosis, then what's God do about it? Really quick, a side note. This is why um, relationships are so painful for us, right? This is why, to bring it full circle to what we were talking about a second ago, this is why it's scary to walk into a room full of people because deep down inside, even if you didn't describe it the way I have, something makes you suspicious of other people, especially ones you don't know. Because you're like, I've been gossiped about before. I've walked into rooms before and people didn't seem to see me or talk to me or remember me. And it's like, you're invisible because other people are committed to their happiness, their interests. And you're like, who wants to walk into a room full of other people who are most deeply committed to their own happiness but not anybody else's? And it makes for a campus full of people who are all very lonely. Um, That's the predicament that Paul is talking about here. And this is big time stuff. And so really we get to, we kind of get to see what does God do about this? What's he doing about it? He says the only way sanity will ever come back to your relationships is if the God who is, the God who lives, the God who's not stuck the way you and I are, the God who didn't break when sin entered the world, unless he comes to you. Which means he has to make the first move. He has to make the first move. Because how does a person with two legs out of the socket run to God? You you sing a lot of songs, you hear a lot of sermons, and they're all about be passionate for Jesus, be devoted to Jesus, be serious about Jesus. That is great. I'm for that. But don't get the order wrong. If you're dead, you can't be passionate about Jesus. If you're dislocated from God, you can try to move around and impress him all you want. We're dysfunctional in the core of our being until he does something about it. So the question that should be coming to your mind, is he a God who wants to do something about it? This is for the Christians in the room, and this is for those of you who aren't Christians and those of you who don't know if you are. This is for everybody, okay? That's, That's a question that always comes back into our head daily. What kind of God is this? What's he going to do when he sees me the way I really am? Is he going to retreat like I'm terrified other people will? Or is he going to flinch towards me? And when he gets to me, what's he going to do? Is he going to crush me? Or is he going to gently take my soul and my heart like a skilled, patient physician and move it in just the right way that it pops back into socket? And for the first time ever, you are able to love again. For the first time ever, 
you are able to do what a human being was meant to do. You're able to think of others. You're able to be free from slavery to self. You're able to orbit around God instead of demanding that God and every other thing in the universe orbits around your desires and happiness and mine. Does this make sense? Unless Jesus reconciles you, pops you back into socket with God, you and I have no hope. And our destiny is people who are more and more committed to our own way, which means we're at odds with everybody else. Tension is our future. And so it is good news. The Bible gives you permission to believe with all of your heart that when God sees you in your worst of moments, in the condition you're actually in, he flinches and he moves towards you. I'm not making this up. Didn't you just read the words on the page too? This is the God, the living God, who says, this is what you could expect from me that I do not count people's sins against them. If Jesus has popped you back into socket with me, reconciled you, spanned that gap between me and that and that bad stuff that happened here, undid it and brought us back together. That's what, uh, uh, what, that's what Paul says God does here. He reconciles us through Jesus. He brings sanity back into our relationships with each other. And so I told you I just had two tiny little goals, not ambitious at all. I wanted to set up the whole semester of why we're talking about relationships. If we didn't talk about this right now, I should have no expectation that you'll believe anything else I say. Because everything else I say is going to come from the Bible, not from my experience. Thank God. That would be a bad day for y'all if that's all you had access to is Ben's wisdom. But God cares about your relationships. God cares about reconciling you to himself because bad stuff has happened between us and him. Sin has happened. Guilt has happened. Shame has happened. Distance is the result. But he also cares about reconciling us to one another. And so I wanted you to see that. We're not stuck. We're not powerless. Even if you've lived your whole life going to church and you are bored to tears with God, I have good news for you. If you're bored with God, you haven't seen the real God yet. How could you possibly be bored with the author and inventor of life and joy and all of those things? The God who is comes to you. Okay? The second thing I said is quick. I wanted to show you as well, give you a sense to get, let you look through the window and see what RUF's about. How does this passage point out just a couple of things about what RUF is about, who we are? Why we are here. Think about all the different kinds of people that this passage points out. There are people who are unreconciled to God. They're still kind of relationships complicated. They're, they're far away from God. They feel far away from God. You feel lonely. You don't know him. You're scared of him. You're terrified of what he would do if he saw you. And he does see you. Um, there's, there's, so there's people who are kind of still out of socket from him. Then there's people maybe who right now, something, this happened to some of you last year, maybe for you right now, Jesus has grabbed your soul and is beginning to put you back in the socket, which is a painful process. feels like he's killing you. What he's doing is actually fixing you and making you alive. So some of you might be there, you're trying to figure out what God's doing to you, but things are different. You don't want to do the same things you used to want to do. 
Maybe sin or going your own way is not as attractive as it used to be. So there's two categories. And there's a third. People who have been reconciled already to God through Jesus. And we're at different stages now of learning to use our souls, our hearts, our bodies, our relationships for what they are always meant to be. Now, if someone like went like a couple of months or a couple of years with a dislocated shoulder and then it got popped back in, uh, there is a long process of rehab for there to be a full usage of that joint again. That's what the Christian life is. Jesus makes you alive at his own cost. God says, I made him who had no sin be sin for you that you might become not good, not better, not nice, not polite, not religious. What does he say? That you might become nothing less than the righteousness of God. Whoa. Has that hit you? God's not giving you a little handout. Here's a little snack. Have this. He's saying his agenda in your life in reconciling you to himself is that you might be clean and innocent and righteous and good and alive just like him. And so are you at this a place where it is safe to be at any of those points on the map? This is a place, think about it like a waiting room at a doctor's office, not a waiting room at a job interview. Waiting room at a doctor's office, you're kind of like, man, we're all sick. I can't even pretend I'm wearing my pajamas. I look like crap. <laughs> and you feel like you have something in common with each other. You're all broken. You all need fixing. Nobody's better. It's not like the guy with the sinus infections talking to the guy with a broken leg. Ha ha. Look at you. <laughs> that is more like what RUF is, what we want it to be, what we're working for this place to be and this group to be. It's not the waiting room in a job interview where you walk into the door and you're immediately sizing everybody up. Is he as spiritual as me? Is he as good as me? Um, is he as devoted as me? Did he have the kind of summer that I had or a better summer or a worse summer? Is he from this group or that group on campus that I don't really talk to? Um, we got bad, bad stuff happening when that's the, that's the culture here. We want, we've been working, we've been praying, we are the products of a place that wants to be, not perfectly, but wants to be safe for you to figure out who you are, for you to figure out who Jesus is. Last thing I'm going to say is this. Safety doesn't equal easy. And it doesn't equal clean. Okay? Uh, if this room is filled with all kinds of those people who are learning at some level, you can expect that we're going to do things to each other. They're going to hurt each other. Because we're all in a doctor's office, right? We're going to get each other sick sometimes. We're going to have to bear patiently with each other. But doing those things is us learning to live again in Jesus and in his grace. So this is the gospel. This is uh, what God has done for you in Jesus. And this gives you a little bit of a, of a, of a snapshot of uh, what relationships in this series will be and what RUF is about. Let's close in prayer and we'll sing another song. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you don't stand far away when you see us as we are in our baggage. We thank you that 
if RUF is ever a safe place, it is never because of us and it's only because of you. Because only you can free us and make this a place where it's free for people to bring their baggage in the door and not have to check it at the door and pretend and hide behind stuff. So this year, would you save us from ourselves? Would you connect us to yourself in ways we never imagined? And would you let this community, this group, even be a hub that begins to overflow onto all of this campus, all 20,000 people, um, that you would show that truly you are reconciling all things in the whole world to your Father through your sacrifice. We ask this in your name with great thanks. Amen.